I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Uh, to start with, my name is Amelia Abraham. I'm an author. I wrote a book called Queer Intentions, which is over there, and we can do better than this. They're, they look very garish next to the Fitzgerald, <laughs> um, and infinitely less chic, but there we go. Um, and I write mostly about LGBTQ plus politics and culture and queer visual culture, and also sometimes about gender and sex. So, yeah, I'm actually working on a book about sex next, so I was very interested to read your book, and I think I would have probably read it anyway as research, so that's nice. Um, so to introduce Polly, Polly Barton is a Japanese literary translator. Her translations include, we did agree that I wouldn't list yes, all of them, but we we'll did. just list we two. Did. Where the Wild Ladies Are by Aiko Matsuda. There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job by Kikuko Sumura. Um, she won the 2019 Fitzcarraldo Editions Essay Prize for 50 Sounds. Um, 50 Sounds is a memoir about the quietly revolutionary act of learning, speaking, and living in another language. Um, so this is your second book, Porn and Oral History. Yeah. Um, I absolutely loved it. It was great. Um, it made me think a lot. And Megan Nolan described it in the following way. Barton's candid, generous style as an interlocutor, interlocutor allows her subjects to move fluidly between their sometimes contradictory instincts and intellectual approaches in a way which feels revelatory and totally honest and human. Um, and I just wanted to read that out because totally honest and human, I think, captures the book very, very, very well. Um, so tonight we'll have a chat for about 45 minutes and then we'll have a Q&A. So feel free to ask questions which Polly either will or won't answer, depending on how personal um, or controversial they are. Um, yeah, and I think, I think that's everything, other than just to say that I think the nature of this conversation will be quite free-flowing um, and maybe, like the book itself, raise questions, maybe even more than providing answers, because yes. we are not experts on porn. Although, in, in some moments of my life, um, I'm very excited, actually, to talk about porn in the LRB. Last time I was here, I told a story 
about drugs that really sort of shamed myself, and I feel that I can outdo that at some point during this conversation. (laughs) In a nutshell, the story was that I had taken a bag of drugs that I found on the floor of a nightclub, which I then left the LRB and was like, I can't believe I said that at the LRB. (laughs) And once again... um, You've done it twice. Yeah, I've done it twice now. Um, But I think that this sets the tone for the evening. In a Like, we can have a candid conversation about porn. Honest and human. Yeah. Okay, um, so to start with the book, you kind of talk in the introduction about how you were reticent to write Mm. a book about porn, Mm. and partly because you were worried about sort of being affiliated forever with mm. porn and being the person who wrote a book on porn. Um, and not even necessarily because porn is considered sort of sleazy or taboo, and we'll go into that more later, but because of that, because it's con- considered by many people as anti-feminist. Do you want to talk about how you sort of pushed through that reticence and you actually came to decide to, to make this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I felt that reticence for a number of different reasons. You know, one of them being that my day job is as a translator and 50 Sounds felt kind of quite in line with that in some way. Um, Whereas porn is very far from that. You know, I'm really not Mm. an expert on it. And and the book kind of tries to embrace that lack of expertise. Um, But there's still something, you know, when when we were introduced earlier and, and... um, Claire said, this is Polly Button, she's here to talk about porn. And there's a pause and I'm like, what? <laughs> Am I? Uh, I still can't, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, in terms of the sense of what am I saying when I, when I publish a book with porn as the title and my name on the front cover, I think there's so many kind of shifting things that come up, like the fear that people will think that I really love porn. Um, the people, you know, the fear that people will think I'm virulently anti it. The people, you know, the fear that really people will think that I sort of have a fixed position on it. Mm-hmm. And, and the book really came from the desire to explore that lack of fixed position and to understand, to sort of break the silence and break the the sense that I had that I couldn't begin those conversations if I didn't have an established position mm-hmm. already or hadn't read up about it. And mm. um, so, it, yeah, it came from there. In terms of working through that, I suppose it was just a question of momentum, really. You know, I started having the conversations and they were great. They were so much more fun than I was expecting and and so much more sort of liberating and then I started transcribing them and at the point that I started transcribing them I kind of realized okay I'm not gonna write these up into polished essays like these need to be preserved in their original format really Mm. to keep that kind of the rawness and also just from an ethical perspective I didn't really feel like I had the right to take the testimony that people had Mm. interested me with and, 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 you know, put my own lens on it. And so then I was there and I was like, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it as interviews. And, and I think at that, throughout that time, like the honest truth is I was feeling mostly okay with it during the day. And then I would wake up with these like terrible night mm. terrors about publishing a book 
that had porn on the title. But in a way, again, in the daytime, I would think about that and think, well, that's all the more reason that you should. I yeah. should. Because yeah. here we are in a sort of so-called, I don't know, you know, most of the people that I hang out with mm. are relatively progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it just doesn't seem like something that mm-hmm. people talk about. Yeah, um, but it's a book about a lot more than porn in a way. I mean, it's a book about all the mm. things that porn is connected to because mm. so many things come up, like fetishes, and it's about a little bit about you know capitalism, race, very, very much about gender. So yeah, it's such a big topic in a way. I wonder that sort of doing it in this format, you've done yourself a favor because it's such a big topic. It's very difficult to tackle, and I wonder if the format. Um, was a way of also saying a lot of people have taken on that task of, of tackling it. And when mm. they have done so, they've seen porn as such an expansive thing. I think there's a quote from Pamela Paul that you will remember that I don't. That The what, pornification of society. The por- yeah. And just like I think when you, you, you talk about Audrey Lord or um, Paul Preciado, when these people talk about porn, it's like porn is everything everywhere. Yeah. It's such a broad topic. Yeah. And that comes across in the book, I think. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. I, I hope that it does. Um, a lot of people have said to me, this book isn't about porn. It's about X. Yeah. Um, and, and that X is, is a number of different yeah. things, like relating to people and intimacy. Mm. and Shame. Shame. Shame is a big one. Yeah. Talking to people. It's about, talk, it's about having conversations with mm. people about taboo subjects. Someone said to me recently, why did you do it about porn and not masturbation? Right. Um, There's probably already a book about masturbation. Masturbation and oral history. Yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> um, I feel like someone's done that. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I think it is a huge topic. I think I knew going into it that it was a huge topic, mm. but my sense of just how huge it was only increased as it went mm. on. Um, and I think in a way, that was a really helpful realization to have because it again sort of reaffirmed this sense of like, this cannot be comprehensive and that should not be an aim mm. of mine. And sort of having that from the outset really helped. Yeah. And then that also then made me feel more okay about kind of preserving those diversions that the conversations took yeah. into like yeah gender relationships etc etc very off in different directions yeah yeah i feel like people or critics maybe <laughs> could be frustrated at this format of you know it's not been edited but you do explain very clearly sorry it has been edited it has been edited <laughs> but you've published the conversation verbatim is what i mean yes. and also frustrated at ambivalence I know that because my first book is also very ambivalent it's about the mainstream of queer culture and I don't get to an answer on that because there's no answer as to whether that's a good or a bad thing there's good and there's bad and so I can empathize and then we were talking just before as well about how some people have been a little frustrated at the title yeah perhaps because it does sound you just said it's not comprehensive and you explained that very clearly in the introduction but I guess it does sound comprehensive do you want to talk a little bit about the title, other than the fact it's a great pun, which I didn't really like pick up on until a friend pointed it out. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, poor and oral history, great. Um, yeah, oral history, let's talk about that. I mean, I think that oral history is huge, again, and it means many different things to, to different people. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you have kind of oral history as it is practiced in a relatively um, academic, as an academic discipline, where, you know, my understanding is that everything has to be 100% verbatim. Mm. Um, so every every hesitation, you know, is recorded in, in some way. And then you have, like, someone like Svetlana Alexeyevich, who, you know, my assumption is that the people, you know, her interlocutors were not speaking in polished monologues. Like, she was asking them questions, but she's redacted herself from those and it's you know extremely effective but it is a kind of a refined form a polished form I suppose and then I think there's this interesting question of like well two two interesting questions how much history should there be in oral history and how comprehensive how sort of monumental does it need to be um and and my sense is that it can be, but it also doesn't necessarily need to be. My hope is that because porn and oral history is a bit of a silly joke, mm. that people can kind of carry that pinch of saltness into the reading of the text itself, because I think that sort of sets yeah. a good precedent for approaching the conversations, not, not to say that the conversations themselves are like extremely lighthearted because often they're not, mm. but they are, you know, mm. there is a lot of humour. There's a bit in the book that's interesting where you're talking to a guy who works at a library mm. and he talks about how people come into the library and they watch porn on the computers at the library mm. and there's nothing he can do about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of the reasons he says there's nothing I can do about that is because he says if we were to try and filter out porn, where would what would we, where would we start and stop? Yeah. And he talks about a pictures of feet porn or a pictures mm. of boobs porn. And, yeah. and so one thing that I wanted to ask you was, what is porn and is it even possible to define it? Yeah. Thank you for that question. It's so interesting. Like one of the things, I guess this is maybe just inevitable, but one of the things that happens, and it sort of happens, happened with 50 Sounds as well, um, is that, you know, as soon as I sort of, hit hit print not that I hit print but you know as soon as the book is printed I suddenly discover this wealth of amazing knowledge that I feel like I I wish I had had going into the project um and so recently the um just the other day I was watching the Netflix documentary on Pornhub that has just dropped um and one of the um porn actors in there gives this definition of porn as something that you watch specifically to be sexually aroused. Oh my god! But even that yeah. watch because a lot of people. So, okay, okay yes. Oh, okay, no, no, you're okay. You're right. No, sorry. sorry go okay, on, no, no. You. Consume, consume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Engage with, mm-hmm. engage with. Um, and I, what I, I think there's there's numerous things that I that I love about that, but definition. But but one of them is that it it puts the onus on the consumer, right? Like, I mean, lots of people talk in the book about um, various forms of of literary porn or, you know, Mm. books that they have read as porn. And I have also done this. And, And I think that doesn't take away from the fact that those things are 
can be things other than porn. And, and some people would read them and not even, it wouldn't even cross their minds that they could ever be porn yeah. in a similar way that some exactly. people might look at pictures of feet on Google and not, you know, that might not occur to yeah. them. Or the right? burping videos, which uh, uh, are reserved yes, judgment. Yeah, yes, exactly. My jaw um, dropped to find and, out that was a thing. <laughs> right. Um, and so, and, and even for like, for one person, at, you know, at a particular time of day, something can be literature or a reference image and then later on in the day it can be functioning as porn um and I feel like that's a really sort of freeing way of looking at it as a segue and maybe you don't feel comfortable answering this what what is the least porny thing that you found to be porn Maybe you don't want to answer that, though. The least really porny thing the that I pa- found to be porn. Because what you just said made me think of how once... <laughs> um, <laughs> it is kind of porn, but once I got off to a gif I saw of Justin Bieber's penis, which is quite extra weird because <laughs> I'm... Um, <laughs> not straight <laughs> but it was like I saw it on Twitter and then I was like okay and then like later that became poor wow I told you I was gonna drop some yeah I'm really truth bombs and the, this the, evening the desire to match that is so great but I haven't got anything okay it'll come to you it'll come to you okay um so what so that's like a good definition of porn um and reading the book I thought about whether there's, there's a lot of talk about shame or stigma or how it feels taboo to talk or what, about porn or watch porn. And mm. I wonder if that is part of what makes porn porn. Um, kind of just thinking aloud the kind of transgressiveness of it or some of the sort of naughtiness surrounding it. If we, ero- if we erase all the stigma, would it still be hot to us? I don't know. I'm just thinking that's a... I don't know if you yeah. thought about that. In the same way that, you know, for a lot of people, kink is sexy in a way because it feels, like, transgressive. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by this question as well. I think when I was much younger, I didn't find kind of straight-up porn very sexy. But... The things that I did find sexy, scenes from films and stuff, were so much sexier because it felt so forbidden. Um, and mm. I had to find innovative ways of watching them when my parents weren't around, mm-hmm. you know. Like a um, ritual around it. Almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's, like someone talks, a couple of people actually talk um, about like having to adjust their TV aerial as a child in order yeah. to get this specific channel and they would see like little flashes of penises amid yeah. all this like blur and buzz and that was so exciting. Yeah. I've, I've actually heard about three different gay male friends talk about sneaking downstairs to watch Queer as Folk late at night. Yes. I think a lot of people had that experience, yeah. the sex scenes in that TV show yeah. as their first porn experience. But it's there's something about the sort of ritual of it. Yeah. Naut- yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then I wonder, I don't know, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Like when people talk about sexuality, the word healthy comes up so much. Like what is healthy and what is not? Um, and I think that there's generally an idea that healthy sexuality doesn't include kind of forms of transgression 
but I'm not sure that I agree with that. It's sort of finding ways of things to feeling transgressive in a way that isn't harmful to others. I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, so I, the, the, the book in the introduction, I talk about this, that the sort of one of the, I think the events that really solidified for me that I wanted to write this book was that I got a text from someone late at night um, telling me that they were watching porn. Mm. And it gave you the ick, kind of. It gave me the <laughs> ick. Yeah, but it, it gave me the ick, but it also gave me to the, like... the formal time. <laughs> <laughs> but it also gave me the, the curiosity of, like, what is going on here? Like, what... What were they being... not trying to start sexting you? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe they were. Anyway. But, but like, <laughs> but what, what, what my thoughts went to immediately was like, okay, is this like, porn isn't exciting enough. Watching porn isn't exciting enough. So then you text someone to tell them that you're watching yeah. porn and that someone, you know, is someone that you shouldn't be initiating right. sexual contact with because you're married and oh, okay yeah yeah i don't know we, we <laughs> I, I don't know what to do with that so i'm just gonna leave it um maybe we can come back to it so um yeah we have we have this idea or it comes up in the book a bit but we, i think there is a social idea that porn homogenizes sex there mm. are of course repeated tropes in porn that we see a lot yeah. and certain dynamics and I do get that, but whenever someone says that, I also think there's so much porn yeah. out there that, in a way, I think it's personally for me like made my sex life more exploratory or inventive. Or there's, it should, I, I always think, yeah, there, of course there is a sort of gendered dynamic and there is a beauty standard, but there's also so much beyond that that we maybe would never see. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, uh, you know, I think it's really interesting. You asked earlier about what do we mean by porn? But I think there's also this question of like, okay, when we're talking specifically about videos streamed on the internet porn, what do we mean by it? Yeah. Because I think a lot of people use porn as a shorthand essentially for like yeah. top page porn hub type stuff. There's so much weird stuff on the top page of porn well, Okay, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't use the word weird. But I know I completely agree with you. Yeah, they do, we're talking about, a set, it's a shorthand for a certain yeah. type of porn. Yes. And I, and I think, in a way, that does, my sense is, if that's all, the only representation of sex that you ever see, you do end up with quite a homogenized or at least mm. sort of biased view of what sex looks like when people have it and, you know, also what the people who are having sex look like, mm. right? But then there's, yeah, like you say, there's like vast wildernesses, not wildernesses, the opposite of wildernesses, very, very densely populated wildernesses outside of <laughs> that yeah. with so much stuff. Yeah. And like, and I think, I think for me, one of the, the nice things about having these conversations was like, seeing the ways in which porn for people could be genuinely kind of creatively mm. inspiring or facilitated conversations, you know, and I think then yeah. hearing those would anecdotes would then make me remember times from my own life when it had functioned in that way 
and yeah, and, and focus less on the sort of like the image that pops into my head when I certainly before beginning this book, when I when I hear the word porn or Pornhub. I, I, th- I think that there is a certain image that pops into a lot of people's heads, and I think this book is really helpful t- for us to move beyond that. Because yeah. porn can be so many things. You know, it yeah. can be arousing, it can be disturbing, it can be funny. Mm. Sometimes I find porn quite funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking particularly of this porn channel that I discovered once called Dancing Bear. Um, it's quite sort of surrealist. This guy kind of arrives at, so it will sort of be like a hen party setup, and he'll arri- he's like a male stripper, and he arrives in a bear costume, which is quite incidental to the plot. Like he's always a bear, but I guess it's just a branding thing. Um, and then he sort of like works his way around the room, and the women seem he's naked, and the women are all clothed, which I think I quite like because like that's yeah. And then they're sort of looking really disinterested, and they sort of clap. Like this, really half-heartedly. It's the strangest, funniest thing. And then at the end, he'll sort of select one of the women and have sex with her in front of the whole, the hen party. Wow. Yeah. But I find it so ludicrously funny that I have returned to it. I sent it to someone I know and they were like, this is like an Alan Partridge type of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So sex can be many things, but I think it can... When we talk about porn being... You know, when we think of porn as problematic, it seems in the book that it comes up again and again that when it becomes problematic is the idea of when there's a blurred line between fantasy and reality or when people go down that rabbit hole of searching for things that are more and more extreme. Mm. Um, But fantasy and reality was an interesting thing Mm. in the book because there's a few ways that it sort of manifests. And one is... There's the fantasy of what we see on screen and then there's the reality of the working conditions or sure. what's happening behind. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's the line between seeing what we were just talking, what I was saying, the line between seeing and doing. Mm. So are you able to separate what you're seeing from something that you shouldn't do? And then also fantasy versus reality in terms of how porn can t- tilt our expectations of what sex is and what sex should be in a way that can be quite negative. Um, what someone in the book says, are we just acting out porn every time we have sex? Where's the pleasure? Fantasy and reality. Yeah. I, you know, I think there are a few conceptual issues like this, I guess, that, you know, before going into the book, it's like, oh, yeah, the, in, you know, the interplay between fantasy and reality will come up. But I think what, surprised me was that it came up in some form in every conversation that mm-hmm. I had and and sometimes multiple times and from so many different angles mm-hmm. um and, and 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 the kind of the causal vectors that join those two things right like like you were saying there's the issue of of, of fantasy and reality within the within the production of porn but just thinking about the consumer um you know how much our reality as it is shaped by the socio-cultural forces that shape us Mm -hmm. dictates what it is that we fantasize about and then 
when those sort of sociocultural forces are also shaping the fantasies that we get to see, how much does that then affect us? And yeah, like with the scripts, um, the, 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 are we acting out porn every time we have sex? If that's all we're seeing and we're not having any kind of diversity mm-hmm. in those scripts, and, you know, inevitably more and more with kids, like, they're going to be watching porn before they have any kind of sexual yeah, experience at all. So then, you know, that's the model through and through. Yeah. How is that shaping, yeah, what what we, like, what we do, but also what we, what we fantasise about in terms of for our own sex lives? I think there's this sort of, us and them thing with that, isn't there? Because is that, I would probably think, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do something just because I saw it in porn. Like, yeah, I have that filter, yeah. whereas someone else might not. But that's not necessarily true. Like, I don't know to what extent. It's the chicken and egg thing that you bring up in the book. Quite a lot. <laughs> I don't know what, how things would be different because they're not different. And yeah. I yeah. think that's probably true of anyone who consumes porn to some extent Mm. to varying extents and I think like to come back to this like healthy these sort of what people say in quite restrictive ways about what constitutes healthy sexuality or otherwise you know there's also this interesting thing of like should if you have if you are healthy sexually like should the sex that you are having the things that you're doing in your sex life resemble the kind of things that people are doing in the porn Mm. that you watch and I think some people would say yes and then others would say, no, no like really no. Yeah. Um, and that actually sort of porn is a time when you can try on possibilities that you wouldn't necessarily want to try on for yourself. Yes. Either because they don't feel safe or they don't feel compatible with your sort of conception of your identity or, or for whatever reason. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And that actually brings me onto something that frustrated me a little bit reading that came up again and again which Mm. was this idea and I totally understand what's meant by it but this Mm. idea that people kept saying you know oh it feels like porn's for men or Mm. porn is made for men and of course so much of it is even formally the way that it's shot yeah from the way it's shot you know male POV or whatever um, to what actually happens and the narrative yeah um but I think so many women are watching the same porn um so is it for men or are we sort of giving something over by saying I I I just yeah um I don't know if that's my perspective as a queer person as well though because maybe at times I'm identifying with the women at times I'm identifying with Mm. the man and maybe if I was a straight woman, I'd have a different experience. I would really feel like, oh, this does feel like it was made mm. for men about a lot of the, a lot of the things I see. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, it's such an interesting group of issues. I mean, I think one of the times that that thing of porn being made for men comes up mm. most often in the book is in relation to lesbian porn right that yes women wanting to get off to lesbian porn but actually finding it quite off-putting because it feels like it's for men yeah, yes yeah um and kind of still like carries a lot of heterosexual tropes or sort of is playing to the male gaze mm-hmm. for anyone here who hasn't looked at the porn hub like they they publish these kind of these annual reports of who is watching 
their porn and kind of do analysis of the statistics there. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and for I think it, I think in 2022, for 46% uh, of gay male porn on Pornhub is watched by women. And that's just like, that's just one. 46% of gay male porn, porn is watched by, by women. women on Pornhub. Um, and, and, and that's just one example. And that's uh, because women don't want to see any women being subjugated. Uh, yes, so yes, I think probably it yeah. is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but when overall it's something like 27% okay. of videos on Pornhub are watched by women. So, which is all just to say, porn is definitely not for men in the sense that it's only men who are watching it. Um, I think the interesting question is like, what, what does it mean even within that for porn to still feel like it's being made for men and yet women watching it? And are that 27% who are watching it feeling that way? Or is it people who feel like it's for men who then turn to other forms either of like mm. outside of those kind of classic streaming sites you know um yeah. or or written or you know whatever yeah um it's interesting yeah it feels like there's a bit of a through line of with a with a lot of the straighter people you talk to in the book like hetero pessimism coming through yeah. when you talk about which is interesting. I, how do I, I don't know how to define heteropessimism on the spot, but you can probably guess. Um, do you feel that the performative distancing of oneself from heterosexuality is a bit mm. as one kind of reading of it or, yeah, I don't know, but yeah. But do you feel, feel that, that from, it would be so much better to be queer, you know? <laughs> do you feel that from the men as well or, or just from the women? From the women. Yeah. There are a few comments that are made. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I yeah. think I sort of just wrote it in the margins a few times. But I suppose a conversation... There's also a bit of a double standard from some of the women. You know, they watch porn, but they don't want to know that their partner does. But I understand <laughs> that. I feel like maybe you even said something at yeah. some point to that. Yeah, absolutely. Effect. Yeah. What was it? I don't know what I said. Well, maybe when you were book. young... <laughs> you don't know what you said in the book. <laughs> Maybe you were younger and a partner had told you about watching porn or something and yeah I mean I you talk, were quite grossed out by it or something but you were younger so I think you said you feel differently now yeah and I don't think that grossed out is quite the, right the phrase like threatened in some right. way and sort of I think what comes up a lot in that in the book and, and I, I definitely identify with this um is people who are in women who are in relationships with men are really frightened to know, yeah, to bring up the conversation because they're scared that it will reveal this reality that they don't feel like they have the capacity to kind of accommodate or it will, like, fundamentally shift something that they think about their partner. Mm -hmm. And I think... You can't unlearn it. Once you know it, it's like you can't unsee it. Yeah. You you wouldn't be able to get it out of your head. And I think that's really interesting. Like, in the lead-up to to working on this book, I try to avoid reading too many kind of academic-y type texts about porn because I didn't want to have a sort of um, knowledge Mm -hmm. imbalance with the people I was talking to. But I did watch a few films. And and there's, you know, there's one... Forget, forget the name of it. Um, but there's one where 
there's a guy who's a porn addict um, and it, this becomes kind of clear to his girlfriend and like the shock mm. and the horror that a man in fact what becomes clear is not that he's an addict it's just that he's watched it once Oh. Um, and like the shock and the horror, you know, and, and this kind of this real idea that like women are princesses who need to sort of live in this fantasy world. Yeah, I've not experienced that in a same sex relationship, but I can imagine that it's different in, yeah, in a straight relationship. If yeah. Because of the gender dynamic. And, because of the gender dynamic. But did you find dynamic. that men were there, therefore a bit shy about talking about their porn habits because they were like, I don't want to seem problematic or something. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think that's definitely a dynamic yeah. that, that goes on. Yeah. Which keeps it shrouded in secrecy. But I think one of the nice things about porn is it is something that you can... It is quite private and it's like something you can have for yourself. And there aren't that many other things. I, I totally agree. And yeah. I, I like the way that that kind of privacy was referenced in the books in the book, book, um, like, you know, and, and, and there's one guy who um, is married and has kids and it, we were talking during lockdown and he was basically saying, you know, I don't really have much time for myself. Mm. It, like when I can kind of be in that creative space and, and, and porn is a way for me to sort of retreat into myself and, and my kind of inner world in some way, which is not how I necessarily would have thought about it before but it was yeah somehow great to hear it being described in that way I think what I would like to sort of say on that is you know when when that started coming up I I started thinking okay is this then does this stand in contradiction with my general well certainly the takeaway of this book but also my general feeling that we should talk about porn more you know mm. like does does keeping it retaining it as a as a private mm. realm then mean not conversing about it like either with friends you know in general in society or like within our relationships and I think at, over time I kind of came to a place where I was feeling quite strongly no like you can still talk about it and be open right. with it while having it as a space to yourself in the, you know, in the same way. Sorry, this is a crass example, but like, you know, if you have like an artistic practice, like you might talk about it with your friends and, and, and your partner, but you still are going into the studio by yourself and, you know, immersing in that world. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that he sort of thought of it as time to himself. I think there's a lot more that we're going to see a lot more of kind of the wellness of porn in the future, which will be good in some ways, probably. It will probably lead to more... What, like masturbating is good for you? It yeah, helps, I mean, we're kind already of... at the point where, you know, you can get a jade egg thing or a silver <laughs> vibrate, you know, like yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes. Trending topic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> been hawking that stuff around. I think that porn, you know, will... Ethical porn is almost kind of positioned. Some types of, like, mm. Ericalist or whatever is mm. kind of positioned more in that way. Yeah. And I don't know if it's... Some people will feel really good about that, and that will be really positive in some ways, in the same way that now you can go to... You can probably, like, look up a sex party on Time Out or something, you know, or yeah. on Field, people are listing their 
kink preferences like it's I like dog walking you know like and that <laughs> is good in some ways but some people will just be split on that I'm like about yeah. that I'm like keep it all gross and taboo well this I feel like it will change more in the future I suppose I think that's what you're getting at as well because you're you sorry the funny thing is you talk to people about oh I I went I watched a porn marathon with my flatmates or I went to a virtual strip club Mm. during lockdown so Mm. I think we can see that happening it is happening and this comes back to your earlier question about the sort of the transgressiveness in a way and I feel like those the the transgressiveness and the privacy relate in in an interesting way I mean there's one conversation in that book with someone where she talks about she lives in California and how there's like this great um, drive to do like be very open about things and like have you know workshops and everything and like fisting workshops yeah. and and so on and she finds that like the most objectionable yeah. thing and I I sort of put, put that <laughs> yeah, she um, finds that objectionable yeah and I I sort of I mean I have a horror of those kind of group situations in in conjunction with anything intimate anyway yeah um, but I think. I do think that there is something to be said for keeping some of this stuff private. Yeah. Sorry, I just started laughing because I was just thinking about like this, what this future could be like, and then I envisaged a, like a brand partnership with Dancing Bear. It's <laughs> like Dancing Bear sponsored by Lemsif or something like that. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, we're going to come to Q&A in just a sec, but I have two more questions. Um, something I really liked about the book is that you left in a lot more of the kind of, I don't want to say problematic, so I'll say trickier stuff. Mm. Well, people say things that may, they definitely wouldn't say if they were in their lobby. No, if they weren't anonymous. Um, so if they weren't nervous, did If you they say? weren't anonymous. Anonymous, so yes. Is there yes. Um, anything that you felt, oh, I really can't publish that? Or was it all just went in? 
there was stuff about me. But I thought you were going to say that. Yeah. That's because, the nice thing about editing the book. Right. You can take that out. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't, you know, I want to be totally straight up about this. You know, the, the conversations that I had with people usually lasted like, an hour and a half and I had 19 of them so you, you like they are edited for sure yeah and and I edited a lot of me out because I mean for various reasons partly because I repeated myself a lot mm. and I felt like it would make the reading experience intolerable and also I, I I wanted to sort of put the spotlight on my interlocutors but also you know they do they are anonymous and my name is on the cover and there are certain things like given the topic being the topic and the way that people respond to well respond to the topic respond to to sort of women writing about sex in general I felt like I wanted to keep some of it under wraps yeah um there are also a couple of bits where I don't know there's a, a, a bit in one conversation where Someone talks about the porn Italian porn producer in the States who I think he said to him, how do you like, how do you continue to be aroused by this stuff? Like, where does it end up? And the guy says, dwarfs. And, and, and I mean, that, and that stayed in there. And it, yeah. it, it felt sort of important in some way to stay true to, to the the horrible Thing, yeah. degrees of objectification that this topic can take you to. Yeah, that you makes know, sense. and the horribleness of the conversations sometimes. Yeah, because that is also a truth about it. Yeah, I guess. Um, we need to go to sure. the audience. Um, I wanted to ask a bit about sort of the ethics of porn, but maybe someone will ask about that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, does anyone have a question for Polly? Hi, thank you. I would love to know how you prepared for these many, many conversations. Thank you. I, I didn't, really. Um, <laughs> before beginning the project at all, um, I made a list of sort of possible, not necessarily questions, but like topics that I felt I wanted to address, aspects of porn. But then as the conversations went on, I mean, I was going to say with the first conversation, but the first conversation I had was actually with, with someone that I'm really close to, so that didn't come up as much. But then the second one, I think I went in and it, it was that was too much on my mind. And it, it sort of started to feel at times like I was entering more into an interviewer type mode, which was something that I felt from the outset I, I really wanted to avoid. Um, I wanted it to be reciprocal. And so I then sort of tried to put that out of my mind as much as possible. And, you know, I mean, there, having said that, there are still formulaic elements to them, obviously. And, and, and there were a couple of questions. I mean, the, the, the hardest thing that I found was, was starting. So there were a couple of like go-to questions that I began with, but then I tried to let the conversation just sort of run naturally from there, if I if I could. Thank you so much. Um, I heard you speak about um, someone being shocked to their partner having like watch porn, but like not actually kind of addressing addressing their addiction to porn that they mentioned. And I was wondering how you think you can keep the privacy and the kind of pleasure that you can experience in porn while being able to kind of speak to and address porn addiction in a way that doesn't kind of trivialise it? 
speak to the speak to the pleasure of porn while not trivialising the the affliction that can be porn addiction. I mean, it's it's a it's a really good question. In a way, I I sort of feel like I sort of wasn't really. I don't consider myself a porn expert, and I don't feel like I want to make any pronouncements about what porn is. You know, in in a way, I'm just presenting the 19 people that I talked to and 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 what they said, and you know, some of them touch on addiction and. I really recognise that that is a serious issue, and I don't think that that would occur. It could occur, really, if there wasn't also some sort of pleasure inherent in it. But I suppose I don't. I don't really feel qualified to make a, an overarching pronouncement on how those two should intersect. If that makes sense. Hi. Hi. Um- First of all, I'll just say thank you for the book. It sort of articulated quite a lot of my own thoughts in a really well, um, in a good way. Uh, my question is, I guess, the difference between good porn and bad porn. Mm. Um, I'm just going to preface that with that. When you talked about what is the definition of porn, mm. and so that some things can be porn that aren't really porn, they sort of art one or whatever, a book. Um, and then I thought, well, is there such a thing as pure porn? And I think there probably is. We'd probably say there's some <laughs> things that are... But are they are they completely irredeemable? So is, is even the porn that is totally you know made for just sexual gratification aesthetic in any way? Um, and I was also interested at the end of your book. You kind of end up talking about the difference be- between the erotic and porn. Yeah. But I I kind of thought is that just are we just talking about good porn and bad porn? <laughs> As in it's erotic when you like it when it's good for you. What is my question? My <laughs> question is. What is the difference between the erotic and porn, or between good porn and bad porn? What, what can can we narrow it down, or is it purely a personal pleasure question? A subjective thing. Thank you for that. Like I, I, I feel like in the afterwards, I talk about um, the erotic versus the pornographic as they occur in Audre Lorde's um, uses for the erotic, and and. One of the things that I find so fascinating about that essay is like she really makes clear that for her, the erotic is not just about sex and it's not living erotically for her doesn't mean, doesn't stop at, you know, sort of having a fulfilled sex life in, in what we would kind of modernly consider um, that to be. It, it's much more about sort of, being congruent and, 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 and feeling embodied and sort of feeling. I suppose, I suppose maybe the, the best way to formulate it, how I conceive of it, although I don't think she specifically formulates it in, in those terms, is, is, is a question of compartmentalization or like dissociation. So when you are engaging in something erotically, it's with your whole being. Um, and I think for her, Pornogra- the pornographic is very much not that. And I, I have a, a desire to say that probably good porn and bad porn to the extent that you can define them in, in, in a way that transcends the subjective kind of comes down to that in a way, like something that you could 
stand behind even when you weren't feeling horny and say like okay yeah i th- this is what i watch i'm kind of i'm 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 okay with that you know and 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 obviously that kind of desire to like as soon as you're done be done you know get the porn that you're watching away from your sight like also is is to do with shame but i think there is also like this it does tie into this kind of dissociation and compartmentalization um thank you so much for your time this evening um thank it's been very interesting um i wanted to ask about the kind of reconciliation that has been mentioned a few times about talking more about porn but keeping it private mm. and because that seems to be the main crux almost and i guess my question is how much do you think as a society we should talk about porn and how should we talk about that because one of the issues about bad and good porn it seems um is that the bad porn filters into the real life bedrooms of men who are conditioned and women as well but largely men who are conditioned to behave in very misogynistic ways sexually mm. um for me personally i think a lot of it has to do with consent and education and i my question to you is do you think we should talk about porn in schools do you think we should educate children around the realities of porn um how porn is made why it is made because one of the things that was raised and going back to the dwarf's point and going back to a question Amelia asked um about transgression when do you draw when do you stop acting out on the porn that you're seeing mm. and you, you do you talk about dwarves dwarves are real people who have real sex and a concern i have is that they're deemed to be something that you shouldn't engage with in real life because it's a fetish mm. And I think that's something kids need to hear. And so my, I, sorry, that's a, a rant. My question is, okay. do you think we should educate children about porn in schools? No, don't be sorry. Um, yes, I do. I really, really do. You know, I mean, we, we get to this ridiculous place, right, where last week <laughs> a head teacher in Florida resigned because she or someone at her school had shown the kids um a picture of Michelangelo's David which is deemed pornographic and it, you know i mean that that's ridiculous for for a number of reasons but one of the i don't know the i i don't know the exact age of the kids involved but the average age for a child to now to watch porn now in the UK is 9 so the likelihood is these kids had seen porn already and and i think that the more that we don't talk about it in schools and don't acknowledge it we you know we drive <laughs> yeah it becomes this very very strange dichotomy between what is acknowledged and 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 the reality um and i feel like that's really really pernicious something uh, so i <laughs> i mentioned in the introduction to this book that um my dad mentioned pornography to me on the phone and the reason that he mentioned pornography to me on the phone is because he has a, a son who's in um senior school and they the parents had been asked to go in for a kind of convention not convention sorry a, a meeting about porn um <laughs> sorry i don't know why i said convention um a meeting about porn um <laughs> where basically they said look your kids are going to be watching porn it's a fact what's really important is to counteract that um and what they suggested was to show them various tv series one of which was normal people on bbc no comment but but um anyway that, that so which is to say and i found that quite heartening because 
at least there is some acknowledgement going on. As far as I'm concerned, I feel like the more acknowledgement, the better. I struggle to see what harm talking about porn could do in schools that would possibly outweigh the good that it would do. Although, you know, I, I also understand that that is a tricky pill to swallow for people who are still in denial about the prevalence and the, the effect. Hey, uh, thanks so much. Uh, I have a question about porn as sort of an, an, such an animating topic, I guess, like generation... Sorry, uh, generation by generation. Yeah. Mia Srinivasan, I think when she was here, was talking about how when she was talking to her students, she was quite surprised that mm. they really were engaged by and sort of wanted to critically think through mm. waves of feminist thought that she thought had kind of been either sidelined or yeah. just not that engaged with. And I guess, what is it that makes a topic so ripe for relitigation generation after generation? <sighs> Thank you for that question. I mean, I want to give quite a, <laughs> a basic answer, which is because it is a taboo to really speak about it. And yet it is something that is just, I mean, particularly, you know, reading, um, well, Amir Srinivasan writes about her students. You know, you, you can see that it's, they feel like it's really a big looming presence in their lives and it's really shaping the sex and the, and, 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 and even the sort of interactions that they're having outside of sex. And yet it's not really acknowledged. Um, and so I feel like that is the draw of it really is just to kind of grasp the nettle that people, that we still I, I still feel like we are unwilling to grasp. Although I will say, something that I will say is, what has been amazing to me is now I seem to be talking about porn all the time. And I don't just mean like in the LRB. It's like something has shifted, I think, probably in my embarrassment levels. And I tell people that I'm working on this or, you know, have, have worked on this. And suddenly, like, it's like a, a dam has broken. And so I think the fact that we don't speak about it doesn't mean that... I think my presumption is that people didn't speak about it because they really didn't want to speak about it. But I think there is a real desire to talk about it. It's just, it's hard to be the first one to broach that topic. Do, does she say in... I can't quite remember, but does she... Amir Srinivasan say that her students, are, she's also quite surprised because they're quite sort of sympathetic to yes. Andrea Dworkin. Yes. And that that was partly as well because they, bad things had happened with yeah. like yeah. image sharing or bad yeah. experiences during sex or rape culture. And yeah. Yeah, it was interesting yeah. to read that. It was quite sort of depressing. Mm. Um, and that, yeah, that Billie Eilish article as well right I, yeah you mentioned that in the book I haven't actually read that okay where she talks about it's yeah you, it's a Guardian article where she basically says like I was watching porn from the age of 11 and it like led me down the route to have some very bad sex and by bad sex she doesn't mean yeah. unenjoyable sex she means sort of I think it, you know issues with consent and violence and stuff right 
Hiya. Hi. Um, I think I just wanted to ask, I kind of noticed that nobody was really using the word violence when they were talking about like transgressive sex or, you know, the gentleman mentioned mm. before that really great question about what is the impact of mm. young people, especially watching what can be quite violent sex mm. without any sort of other context contributing to that voyeurism. Mm. Um, that was my first question. And also, I guess, sex work as well, like sex work is part of pornography and that's something as well that we've not touched upon yet and um, i would be interested to hear thoughts on on both of those thank you for those questions by yeah. the way because we i would have loved to ask about both things so yeah yeah i mean i feel like this ties so neatly in with the question before the violence is real right and and, and i think you're right i think i mean this is this is an an issue that comes up again and again, another issue that comes up again and again in the book, right? This sort of tension between wanting to appear sex positive, appear non-judgmental, appear open, appear progressive, while at the same time acknowledging the violence that is inherent in a lot of porn um, and a lot of what I want to call mainstream porn, while knowing that that's a, a loaded and, and difficult and problematic term. And yes, again, like like you say, within sex work as well. Like I, I yeah, I, I I fully acknowledge that those are things that need to be more openly discussed. And I think that probably one of the reasons that we don't talk about porn more is because that tension is so huge. But I guess I feel like it's not going to go away without a discussion of it first. There's different types of violence too, right? Because there's actual sort of physical violence that you see, that you might see in porn. I actually don't, I rarely <coughs> encounter that. But then there's also the sort of more insidious type of violence of the gender dynamics or that, uh, that porn can... Yeah. Re- re- yeah, you yeah. Know, so there's different types of violence totally. as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. thank you so much, everyone, for your questions, and thank you, Holly. It's such a big topic. We could there's so many more things that we yeah. I want to talk about, yeah. um, but we covered some quite a lot of ground. So thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk/events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.